Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 to 314. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of God. It is a a pleasure to see so many people at church on the high holy day of American religion, Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) Um, You know, you do know that football is like America's greatest religion, and this is the high holy day of that religion. But, you know, we we, we worship a different God, and it's great to see that (laughs) a lot of other people want to worship the true God, right? Um, That was an incredible passage, and some of you are probably following that. That was a, a mouthful. And some of you are thinking, what does that mean? I don't even understand what half of what she read, you know, our, our, our dear sister read that. It's a difficult passage, and um, there's no way I can unpack all of it, but um, I want to unpack some of, the, some, of that, um, some of this passage. It is an extraordinary passage. Um, it, it's, it, it's, when I, whenever I've been reading this passage again and again all throughout this week, and I, and I was thinking, um, what bad writing? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I kept thinking. I was thinking, this writing is so convoluted that 
if my sophomore year English teacher, who by the way was an excellent teacher but quite terrifying, right? if he got to be Paul's English teacher, you know, Paul would have written better, okay? And probably he would have probably failed Paul, all right? But um, I don't know why God chose such a, such a poor writer to write this incredible portion of Scripture, but it is an absolutely extraordinary portion of Scripture. And um, let me give you, let, let me frame this a bit. Um, we're in part three of a series on identity about being sons and daughters in Christ. And in part one, just to, just to, to just quick recap, part one, I shared about this passage where Paul says, I do not, I'm not worried about, it's a very small thing to worry about what you think of me. And then I don't even worry about what I think of me. <laughs> I don't even judge myself. And there it was an entryway into the gospel's approach toward identity. Not what other people say, and then we have to chase after other people's standards, or my own, because that's the way we think. We think we're only doing our own, but actually that's a big trap. And instead, not outward, not inward, but upward toward Jesus, right? That was part one. And last week, I preached out of actually the first portion of this text, the Galatians 2 text, um, where it talks about this strange thing that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's chapter 2, verse 16. And even though that's strange language, because most people think, I'm, I don't even know if I believe in this God stuff. And what, so what is justification? Why is, why is it so important to receive, to be justified, to receive justification? And I, and I taught last week that every human being is seeking justification, not just Christians, not just religious people, that we all live before some type of standard a law, and that law will define, you know, my identity. Like, do I actually fulfill my identity? And that law, and if you do, then you are you receive worth under that law. And that word, that word, that this pronouncement that you're righteous under the law. That's the way the Bible puts it. But the modern way of putting it is, we're looking for worth. I'm looking for self worth. And if I just achieve everything that my standard tells me to do, then I'm justified. That's the way the Bible puts it. Under the court, because that's court language. Under the court, you're pronounced righteous, or you're pronounced of having worth, and that's a deeply human problem. And what the Bible says is, this isn't going to work. <laughs> no one can be justified by works of the law. That's what I preached. And whether it's the works of God's law or some other law that you, d- that you follow to shape and define your identity. That's what I talked about last week. And today... I want to move the discussion along, and we're going to get further along as we get to chapter 3, because as Paul is moving this discussion to the problem of the law itself. And this is what I've seen in so many people. People, even though they are Christians, they get stuck on the Christian life because all they see is the law. <laughs> they only see the rules, the expectations, the standards, and that's, that's all that they, they're just kind of stuck there Instead of moving to this deeper thing of a new identity and what I want to talk about, at the center of Christianity is not the law. It's actually a relationship, and that's what what this passage is trying to get at, okay? So that's the intro in three parts, this message from law to relationship. Part one, the curse and limits of the law. It isn't just that we sin and break the law, it's the law itself, that being that living your life according to law, that is actually at the core of the problem, right? 
number one. So Roman number number one, the curse and limits of the law. Number two, part two, letting love in. <laughs> letting love in and really not just a feeling, but letting love in through a deep relationship. That's part two. And part three, the greatest gift of all. We're looking for this deeper gift. And it's a gift that's even greater than justification. To be justified or to be pronounced good under whatever standard, there's even a greater gift than that, which this passage references, okay? So let's get into it. Um, Part one. Let me take you to chapter three, verse 10. So um, maybe, uh, William, I can ask you to flash that up there. Chapter three, verse 10. It's... This is something that Paul says, and I want you to understand, this is for a Jew. Paul says, now he's not only a Jew, that he says he's a Pharisee. And for those of you who may know something about um, Jewish history, Pharisees are the people who very much cared about the deepest depths of the law, that that, that the, the Jews would follow a right reading and understanding of the law. And so for a person who's Jewish, and the Jews in their religion... Everything is ultimately defined by law, the law of God. And for a a Jew who considers himself not just a Pharisee, he he says in another portion of Scripture, I'm not just a Pharisee, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm the best darn Pharisee you will ever meet. I mean, that's quite a boast. And for him to say this, so this is what he says, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law, what, are under a curse. (laughs) That's what he says. All who rely on works of law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Okay? That's what a Jew, actually, a Jewish person who came to know Jesus, I'm telling you, this, is, this kind of verse is why the Jews wanted to stone him. He's essentially tearing down the whole fabric of the most important thing of their worldview. But um, let me tell you something. What he's saying, some of you are saying, like, well, that's like the law of God, and I don't, I'm not even sure I believe in God, and so is this even relevant to me? Because I don't try to follow the, the, the law of God, and I don't do the works of the law of God, so I'm not under that curse, am I? Um, Paul would say, yes, you are. In fact, what if you live, it's not even just the law of God, Whatever law that you allow, that you willingly give yourself to, because remember what did I say at the beginning of this, of, of this uh, series? I said, I want you to think throughout this series, who do you willingly, willingly obey? That's your God. That's your shaper of your identity. Do you want to obey? What? what is it? And all of us, you may think that you're in charge of your own life, but Actually, there's something else out there that you think is so important to, to shape and define your entity, and it has a law. It has a set of standards. And that is what you live under. That law is what shapes you. And so, um, just to give you an example, so Paul will say, if you, whatever that is, whatever that law is, that's your God. That's your law of God. I know it sounds a little strange to put it that way. So, just to give you an example, let's say you think your identity is to have a perfect body and I'm going to be a really fit person, or maybe not even a perfect body, but a really healthy body. So let's, let's be a little more reasonable, okay? You're not PX90 super six-pack type, but you're going to eat right, okay? You're going to not have super muscles, but you'll be healthy, and, and you will look good, uh, maybe not awesome, but good. 
guess what? If this is your identity to be a healthy, healthy, fit person, does it have laws? Oh, you bet it has laws. <laughs> it has a lot of laws. And you notice, this is what you do. You wake up in the morning, and all those laws own you. <laughs> and there's laws about sleep. So while you're not even awake, <laughs> those laws define you, <laughs> okay? There's laws about what you eat, and there's laws about exercise, and all these things. And then there's the laws of all these things. And so just to just take this, I'm not even talking about the laws of God. If you are under a law, there's a curse of law. And what I want to do in this first thing is just to convince you that Paul is right. That law itself, that there's something so messed up inside of us that the law, it should be something good. Because the law of God is good. In fact, the laws that tell you how to have a fit body and a good, healthy life, are those bad or good? Aren't they good? I mean, they should be helpful, right? They're good. And yet... If they are the ultimate definer of who you are and your identity, it's a curse. And let me just go over some of these. Um, so first, here are some of the curses. Um, if the law gives you your sense of worth, what the Bible calls righteousness, your sense of worth. So let's just use the example I'm using, um, a fit body, okay? So he says, you are fit and really good looking and really healthy. That's justification, Okay. <laughs> If you think that you, either you can say that to yourself or somebody else who really knows what they're talking about, I mean, if some slobby person who eats really bad comes up to us, you're a healthy person, you would just go, okay, you, 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 you feel no sense of blessing of justification. But if someone who really knows what they're talking about comes up to you, I mean, if Jillian Michaels comes up to you and says, wow, you're a really fit person, ah, oh, you know, like, your God just spoke, <laughs> and, and you just felt the blessing of justification. But... Let me, let's, let's go through some of the curses of the law. Number one, if you are serious about this, all righteousness or seeking of worth through the law, you know what it starts to do? It always has a tendency to multiply laws. Is that true? Isn't that true? So let's just, so, um, how many laws do you have to know in order to eat right? Do you know? You know, I actually have no idea, but you probably, I bet you there are hundreds um, when we think about the law of God, most people think about, say, the Ten Commandments. So, oh, there's ten. There's ten big ones, right? Um, that's not the way the Pharisees saw it. The Pharisees didn't think there were ten big ones. Actually, they counted them all up. They went into the Bible and they counted them all up, and they f figured out that there were something like 700 of them. And they wanted to keep all of them. 700 is a big number, but it's actually kind of doable if you actually... But, um, how about if you just want to be a fit person? So let's say that's your identity in God. Okay, well, there's all the laws about food and nutrition. And then there's all the laws about when you should eat, right? How often you should eat. And we haven't even gotten to the exercise. How many reps you have to do. How many calories you have to burn. How much weight you have to lift. How, how long you got to run your cardio. Do you notice how these laws are just proliferating? They're getting bigger more and more. And then the more serious you want to be about it, the more and more they get. Just, that's just the first one. And so you wake up in the morning, and a thousand laws are already on top of your head just to be, to have the identity of being a fit person. Um, I see so many people today, let's, let's it just, you, just pick another example that I see a lot of people. So, the, you know, the fitness, the health, health one, all right, is common today, but 
Uh, the other one that I often see, by the way, in, 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 a, in a secular world, you don't only bow down to one God. <laughs> there, are, there are many people today who are enslaved to two sets of laws or three sets of laws. And so you wake up in the morning, you bow down to the fitness God, but then you might be a mom. And I see so many mothers today who are feeling so afraid because there's a thousand laws on how to be a perfect mom, right? <laughs> how do you like that? So... You get, you, 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 you get the fitness God telling you how much you suck. <laughs> and, then, and then you got the, the perfect mom God telling you how much you suck. Isn't that terrible? I think that sounds cursed to me. All right. Okay, if that's not enough, it gets worse. <laughs> First, there's too many laws. And then there's a standard about how to keep the standard. <laughs> there's the law about how well you should keep the laws. So... Um, so, let's say you, 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 you're, you're on that low-carb diet, and you get through six days, and you don't eat any of that extra piece of bread or cake, and then on the seventh day, you ate too much cake, too much carbs, you're bad. I mean, you're pretty good. I mean, like, a, a, you know, a person like me, you know how many days I, I meet up to the, 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 the low-carb God Zero. <laughs> I am a sinner against a low-carb God every day, seven out of seven days. I'm a failure, zero out of seven days. But if you are a good, righteous person, you, you make it six out of seven days, but the seventh day, oh my goodness, you eat that one little piece of cake, you just sin and you just cry. So it's, like, it's not even just that there's so many laws. It's the standard of how to keep the standard. Oh, it gets worse. I'm not even done. <laughs> There is the problem of guilt and condemnation. So what we want in justification is we want the pronouncement that you're good, you're righteous. <laughs> you have worth. You have you fulfilled the law. Okay? But the opposite is you're guilty. You failed. There's condemnation. And so let's say you actually make it through all the whole week and you ate all the right foods and you did all the right reps and you did all the cardio, you did everything exactly right. And then on Monday morning, you wake up the next day and then guess what? You, you may have succeeded, but you're not happy that you succeeded because on Monday you could fail again and fear, the fear of the failure, guilt, condemnation, of the fitness God hangs over your head. So guess what? You know what happens? Fear and guilt <laughs> and failure and being pronounced condemned as a failure, that's all the time. In other words, you don't live out of joy and happiness. You live out of fear and failure all the time. So I, have you noticed that our society is constantly about condemnation and fear? I mean, just to, to take one, today, if you're a racist, you're, I mean, that's failure. But do you notice how many different ways that you could like just say the wrong thing and people will think, oh my gosh, this person's kind of a racist. You notice that? And do you notice how our society is so filled with fear because of that? So fear. So fear like dominates your life if the law is what defines you. So too many, if the laws proliferate. Two, there is the crushing standard of keeping the standard. And then three, there's the fear of condemnation and guilt. And let me offer you one more that most people don't often think about, um, which is this. So let's say you're actually good 
at keeping all the laws and the standards. Okay? So let's just go back to the let's go back to the fitness God. The fitness God with all his rules about or her rules. I don't know if it's a her or a him, all right? I mean, just you, whoever your, your, your workout coach is, you know, if, if it's a guy, your, your fitness guy is probably a guy. If it's a girl, it's a girl, okay? Um, but let's say you do it. You do everything right. So then, and then here's the next thing that happens. So you're good at it, right? You're righteous. So then you go to a restaurant, and you're eating your nice, good, gluten-free, low-carb diet, and you're looking over there at that person, and you're, you're feeling good. I mean, I did all my workout. I'm slim. I feel good. And you're looking at that person over there, and they're kind of a little lumpy in shape. And, and there's, there's a little too many pounds on certain parts of their body, and you see this person eating maybe one extra piece of cake, and you know what you think? I'm better than you. <laughs> That's what you think. Oh, you're, you're lazy. Can't do it. I can do it. That's the other part of the curse, the pride. It starts dividing the world between the healthy and the failures, the unhealthy. We don't want any unhealthy people around here. I mean, it's, it's really weird. You go to certain gyms, <laughs> and the gyms are intended for the flabby people to show up to get better, but certain gyms you show up and only the healthier are there. It's, it's almost like church, right? <laughs> it's like you can't show up and be sinful at church, even though the whole purpose of church is to come out of sin and to grow into, into, into beauty and holiness. But the gym is filled with all these like judging people filled with their pride. <laughs> because the world is now separated between the healthy and the unhealthy. It's the curse. I'm going to read to you a little portion out of this um, book. Um, Francis Spuford, I, I, I quote this a little while ago, unapologetic, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. And um, Francis Spuford is a, is a British author, and um, I, I really don't know him too well. And um, he was an atheist for 20 years before he became a Christian. So... Um, you should understand that the, the Church of England has a lot of, like, there's, there's so much, like, cynicism in the Church of England because it's a state-sponsored church, and people just tend to think, oh, that's stupid religion that nobody cares about, right? So he grew up in the Church of England. It caused him to become an atheist for 20 years, and then later on he finally met Jesus, okay? And he has, um, I don't really, he, he uses a lot of swear words in this book, actually. He's very punchy and um, rude, in order to get his point across. And some of the stuff I, he says, I think, are, are not actually even not right. But this part that he says is so insightful. right? And um, let me get at it. He's contrasting. He's trying to share why Christianity is, dis, is unique and special compared to the other religions that are dependent on law. And by the way, every religion, every worldview is dependent on law, including like secular racism God. So it's, it's strange. There's so many people today who think, I'm not anything like Jews and Muslims, but when I look at our society, it's incredibly legalistic by every standard that the racism standard, the eating standard, the, par- you know, the parenting standard. All, the secular, all my secular neighbors feel like the most intense Pharisees that I know. It's weird. But here's where he, how he contrasts Christianity to the other law-keeping monotheisms, Judaism and Islam. This is the way he puts it. He says, 
Unlike the old Agatha, this is the crucial point at which Christianity parts company with the other two monotheisms. Unlike the oldest Judaism and the youngest monotheism, Islam, of the one God religions, the middle siblings, that's what he calls Christianity, the middle sibling isn't interested in coming up with a set of sustainable rules for living. Jewish laws of behavior and Muslim laws of behavior may be demanding to keep at times, but they can be kept. That's the point of them. That's what, what they're there for. Eating kosher or halal can involve juggling with saucepans and reading the sides of packets carefully, but it isn't a form of privation. I mean, I know. I actually go to a Chinese restaurant that's halal, <laughs> And it's pretty good Chinese food, okay? So it's not like they're missing out on good Chinese food. Isn't that weird? You know, Muslim Chinese folks, right? So he's right there. Getting up for the dawn prayer can be a pain, but it won't leave you short of sleep if you just go to bed at a sensible hour. Refraining from work on Shabbat, which is Sabbath, right, is tricky if you define work to include all the household chores, but... Actually, it's not an impossible thing to organize. There's a wiggle room built in, kindly built into the rules, so that you can cope if the water main bursts on the Sabbath day. So it's nothing crazy or superhuman is required of you. The idea is to have a set of laws like a wearable coat, a coat that, can put, that um, everyone can put on if they're willing to make the effort. In Judaism and Islam, you don't have to be a saint to know that you are managing to be an adequately good woman, an adequately good man. You know what that means? Justification. You're a good enough person. That's justification. Islam and Judaism accomplish this livability, this wearability, by paying more attention to what people do than what they feel about it or even what they believe. Quite, They are religions of orthopraxy, in other words, proper activity, right doing, not orthodoxy. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is about orthodoxy, what you believe, proper teaching. Huh? Do the right actions, and you can be hissing and spitting inside or bored, senseless, or going through the motions to please your family, and it still counts. Huh? Virtue is something you get to achieve through your works. The result is in some ways a lot more moderate, a lot more stable than Christianity, and it can seem rather humane too. Um, with plentiful opportunities for the unvirtuous or ex-virtuous to rejoin the virtuous ranks, all you got to just do is do the stuff. Right? But it does indeed produce a judged picture of the world. Listen, this is that fourth part of the curse I talked about. A judge picture, it produces a moralized landscape in which the good people can be, can be told from the bad people. In which all the human actions can be split between two categories. Pure, impure. Clean or dirty. Permitted or forbidden. Kosher or, I don't know what that means, treif. I guess that means not kosher. Halal or haram. Alright? Or as I said, healthy or unhealthy. Isn't it strange? Uh, the secular person who worships health, they're just, they're not a whole lot different, are they? Listen to what he says next. Christianity does something different. It makes frankly impossible demands 
Instead of asking for specific actions, it offers general but lunatic principles. That's the way he puts it, right? Christianity thinks you should give your possessions away. It, Christianity says refuse to defend yourself. Love strangers as much as your family. Behave as if there's no tomorrow. That's all the stuff that's straight out of Jesus' mouth, by the way, right? These principles do not amount to a sustainable program. It's actually nutty. I mean, there, there was a, a, a sermon I listened to, Tim Keller. He, uh, he, uh, he, had, he asked people who, who were you know, unbelievers to come to the church, and they read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, these things that Jesus says. And after they read it, the, there was a young woman, and her reaction was, this is stupid. <laughs> that was her reaction. This is the stupidest, crazy stuff. Exactly. These principles deliberately ignore the question of how they could possibly be maintained. They ask you to manifest in your ordinary life a drastically uncalculating, unprotected generosity, and that's not all. Christianity also makes you mean by your behavior what you mean important. Your motives matter. So here's what he means. So Christianity says, Give radical generosity to the poor. Give lots of money to the poor. So, you know, that's not even good enough, according to Jesus. So you give, like, $100 to the beggar on the street. $100 is good. But in the inside, you're like, I just did it just to do it because I just have to do it. You know what? That's not good enough. That's Jesus' way. So not only do you have to, should you give generously to the poor, but you actually have to love them. You're supposed to actually want to do it. And so then this one goes, ah, what the heck, right? So then he goes on to say this. So far, it is thrillingly impractical. That's the way he puts it, Christianity. But now notice the consequence of having an ideal of behavior not sized for human lives. Everyone fails. Really, everyone <laughs> No one only means well. No one means well all the time. Looked at from this perspective, human beings all exhibit different varieties of effing up. And suddenly, in its utter lack of realism, Christianity becomes very realistic indeed. It is intelligently resigned to our vast array of imperfections and much more interested in what we can do to live with them than in laws designed to keep us segregated from the ones who fail. Christianity maintains no register of clean and unclean. It doesn't believe in the possibility of clean, just as it doesn't believe that laws can ever be fully adequate. See, laws don't work. <laughs> that goodness can be reliably achieved by following an instruction book. Get it? See? Even this hardcore, rude, former atheist, he gets Galatians chapter 2 and 3. Christianity, this is the way Jesus puts it, or the way he put it, or the way Paul put it here in chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. And there's so many Christians I know today that can't seem to get this. Like, they first do a bunch of things that they know is really bad, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm on porn, and I, I just can't get off it. Or, like, you know, they were a liar and a cheater, or they hated their parents, or something like this, and there's something really wicked that they know is really messed up, 
and according to God's standard. And then they find out that Jesus is a lamb of God who shed his blood and washed me of all my guilt. Are you kidding? That's crazy stuff. So then they're, I, I, I need Jesus. So they run to Jesus and they receive forgiveness and justification by what he did, not what they do. And then, you know what, then, then, you know what Christians then, then they next do? Then they said, okay, tell me all the things I'm supposed to do. <laughs> they immediately start jumping to all the laws again. They start, they, then it's like their, their life pre, prior to Jesus was all based on law. And then they now want to follow Jesus as, show me the new laws. And you know what Paul would say to you? He would say exactly what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, <laughs> who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly crucified. Don't you get it? This isn't the way it works. Because that's exactly what the Galatian church was doing. They were saved by grace, and now they're going to go back to the law. And so let me say it to you. Oh, foolish 21st century Christians, who has bewitched you? And for so many Christians I know, the reason they, get, they start losing joy and they get stuck in their Christian life is they only know how to like fo- focus on the things you're supposed to do, the law. But actually, you're supposed to die to the law. The law itself. God just gets rid of it. The whole purpose of making you see that the law isn't going to work and then for Christ to be crucified in our place so that all the law keeping dies with Christ. Now let me go to part two. I want to talk to um, one more problem of the law. Okay, so I've given you four curses of the law already. Let me give you a fifth. Okay, part two I said was letting love in. This is the fifth one. If you are, if your life is all about your identity and then you have to feel justified and a good person within your identity, then, and you're going to be fixing all the things in order to you for you to do the works to achieve your identity, then you know what? Your law is always going to be about the rules and the standards, whatever they are. And I already told you that some people, they have multiple gods. I mean, like, you're, you're like, well, bowing down to the, the fitness god and we're all avoiding, like, the, the condemnation of the racism god. And what that really is, it's, it's a very lonely place. It's a lonely place because all your standards is constantly on top of you. It's, that's, what's, that's what we're fixated on. But really, what you need is something else. There needs to be a space for all the laws to like, be pushed back. And what I'm saying is, in order to let love in, a new identity built on relationship can flow in. That's how love comes in. Um, you know, um, if uh, you guys all know, almost all of you know my wife's name. Her name is Grace, right? And if you ask me who she is, I mean, she has a, she, there's a, a job, and there are standards to that, her position, which is, 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 is being a wife. She's my wife. And, but you could say there's laws to it, but when I think about my wife, or when she thinks about a relation, do you think she thinks about the laws? Do you think she thinks about the laws? And when I think about who she is, do I think about this, this one person who has this role called the wife, but that's the relationship. That's the depth of the relationship. Because let me, let me put you into something else that why, if laws is all there is, here's what laws are for. Laws are said to be universal and impersonal. You guys realize that, right? So if you're going to follow after the fitness God, 
It's not personal to you. You just failed the, the carb count. It's just a rule that's imposed upon everyone. It's, you know, you're just a general figure having to, to be in this category, trying to fulfill your identity through this thing. But it's, very, it's rather impersonal. So if you're in there, you're just following a bunch of laws that are based upon you, but it's impersonal. But actually, the whole purpose of the gospel is not to make your relationship between God, where God is up there, and then he has a whole set of impersonal laws that he imposed upon everybody. Actually, he's trying to make it particular. The laws are universal and impersonal, but love is particular. How particular? You're a very, very particular person. You have a name. You have a shape. You have a history. You have memories. You have hurts. You have triumphs. It's only you. And a number of you have a husband or a wife, but let me tell you, when I think about my wife, it's not about laws. It's just grace. There's just one person. And I don't have to have a bunch of laws. In fact, I don't really worry about the laws, except now, I, I mean, I, I, it's not even on me. I just have a relationship, and love flows from her and to her. I'll give you another example. Um, a lot of you know my, I'm not trying to like say like we're the best or anything like this, but just, you know, I think we're a decently good family. But, and a lot of you could say the same thing. But just to get, I'm just sharing from my own personal experience, like um, many of you know my youngest daughter, you know, her, it's Elizabeth. And um, if you've been around her, you, you know that she's a rather free person. <laughs> okay? She has like no filter. <laughs> a thought pops into her head and it comes out of her mouth, Okay? And um, in, our, in our house, she just kind of loop-de-doop, doop-de-doop, doop-de-doop. <laughs> she does goofy things. She does things that are like, why did you do that? <laughs> and sometimes it's because she did something that we did that kind of drives us a little nuts. But other times it's just, just her being her. Um, there's something that she does. That she likes to sing in the shower. She's done this since she was very little. So she can you know, finally you know, get to the point where you know, the child can take their own shower, which is great. No, that's awesome, okay? And um, so she's in there taking her own shower, and um, she sings in the shower. <laughs> Nobody told her to do it. There's no rules about it. She sings. She typically sings one of two types of songs. One is a praise song that she, the latest praise song she likes at church. So she's singing to Jesus. I don't know if she's actually singing to Jesus. <laughs> she's just singing the tune that she likes. Because the reason I think that is because the other kind of song that she'll sing is like, a, like Adele. <laughs> and so she's singing some bitter like love song. <laughs> so here is this girl who has never felt this heartache of being having her heart ripped out by like a, you know, the love of her life, singing, you know, never mind, I'll find somebody like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she sings. She sings stuff like that in the shower, right? And um, there was a day when I was uh, giving my other daughter, Laura, you know, I was riding to school, and somehow, I don't know, this came up in the conversation, and she says, you know, Elizabeth sings in the shower. And I go, yeah, we all hear it. (laughs) And she says, I think it's weird. (laughs) That's what she said. I said, yeah, but that's her. She goes, and and, like she said in a way, like, I would never do that. I was like, yeah, but you don't, it's not you. There's no law. There's not even a thought of law. She lives in a house where she has a profound and deep 
relationship. She is the daughter of Susan Grace Park. She is the younger brother of Hudson and Laura. And she doesn't, I mean, there are laws like get up in the morning, brush your teeth, go to bed by a decent hour, you know? And sometimes she doesn't chafe. Every now and then we find out she, doesn't, she didn't brush her teeth. I'm like, what? <laughs> we all go, what? And you know, it's not even just, you know, me and my wife. Hudson and Laura look at her like, what? <laughs> what is, what? What is wrong with you? And I look at her like, do you want to, you know, cost me thousands of dollars? She's like, sorry, Dad. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> she gets in there, and, you know, humming away Adele while she, like, you know, <laughs> scrubs her teeth. And in a sense, that's the law. But do you think it's the law to her? She's dead to the law. There's no law. There's just a relationship. And in the relationship, it's utter freedom. It's just love. Where she could screw up. She could screw up without condemnation. Maybe a little, some, (laughs) and she can succeed without pride. And indeed with celebration. And she could just be plain weird. No law. See, this is letting love in. And this can only happen when the law is dead and the relationship fills everything. Let me um, close my message. I said that um, I'm going to close by telling you the greatest gift of all. This is the way Paul puts it in this passage. Um, Chapter 3, verse 2. Let me ask you this. You dumb old Galatians, constantly going back to the law, the rules. What is wrong with you? (laughs) Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Let me ask you that question. Foolish 21st century Christians, me included, so, you know, I could sit down and do a song. (laughs) I'd be right in there. Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you attained this by like following all the rules? I mean, like you did every quiet time. You showed up at church exactly right. You did all the tithing. Is that how you received the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Because somehow you did all the works and you attained it? Or didn't you just receive it because you heard it? And Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to you because you believed. Not because you deserved it. Not because you can earn it. Many people have a different idea of what the Holy Spirit is. Some of you are like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is. It's like some weird third person of God, and I don't get this Trinity thing, okay? And he's invisible. I mean, at least Jesus is a person. You can kind of like imagine him. He has a beard, and he touches lepers. And, you know, you, you can see this thing. I mean, who knows if he had a beard, okay? I mean, you probably have this idea that he's the really sweet guy with the beard who touches lepers, okay? And, and at least the Father, the Father is like a figure. You know, you probably see him as like this like this white-haired, like, authoritative figure in the sky or something like this, right? But the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit? Is he like a, in, the, 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 in, the, in, the, in, the, in Christian Europe, we even call him the Holy Ghost. That's even worse, okay? The Holy Ghost, he's, he's a ghost, okay? And so some people have this idea, what's the Holy Spirit? 
And some people have this idea, the Holy Spirit is sort of like this feeliness that you get when you get. Or the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is, is the one who, like, if you get the Holy Spirit, you, you, know, you, you start flipping and flopping and, you know, start prophesying and doing tongues or something like this. Let, let me, let, let me um, try to reshape this for you. You know who the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is the person of God who is the life of God himself. The way St. Augustine put it was, there's the Father. I mean, obviously, he's simplifying to like just, you know, for all us dumb people, okay? He says, there's a Father and there's a Son, and there's a love between the Father and the Son that is so tremendous. The love is alive. The love is a person. The Holy Spirit is the very life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the it's a full totality of the utterly free and beautiful, pure love. Do you think there's a law? Father, son, son. <laughs> the father comes to the son. Son, did you follow the law about brushing your teeth? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, just to say it, it sounds completely absurd, isn't it? Because between the father and the son, there's the father, son, and the life of the God, the Holy Spirit the absolutely pulsating ocean of the life. The life of God, the love of God. The love of God is the life of God. The life of God is the love of God, who is a person. And for us to receive the Holy Spirit is like saying you receive not something from God. See, like most of us, we we would just love it if we can just receive justification. That's great to receive justification. That's great not to be condemned. That's great to receive, you know, like a perfect resurrected body and to live eternally. That's great to have heaven and like nobody around you is going to be mean or unjust or steal from you or gossip about you. All these things are great. That's receiving something from God. But actually, what Paul is saying is what you received isn't something from God. You got something better than justification, better than heaven, better than forgiveness. You receive the Holy Spirit who is the full totality of the fullness of God himself coming into you. And if you want the Holy Spirit to really be able to, you have to let the law go. (laughs) Believe the gospel. That when you believe in Jesus, you were united to him on the cross, and the law died with you on that cross. You're not under law. (laughs) You're only under love. (laughs) And that love is not just a feeling. It's not just an experience. This is the wild thing. You don't even feel them. <laughs> there are days you're like, I just feel crappy. And I am angry. And I am depressed. And I am guilty. And I'm really effing up my life. And effing up all the people around me. That's me. That's how I feel today. This is what's real. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is with you. <laughs> even when you don't feel them. The love of God is with you. And if you could remember... Put the laws away. All the laws that's condemning you, that's exhausting you, that's crushing you, and put it away and just sit there. Father, Son, and the life of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit will be with you. This is the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. Father, we are so bad at this. We're so bad at this.
that you gave us a gift. You gave us Jesus. And since we can't see the Holy Spirit, you gave us the bread and the wine so we can eat of the Spirit. And I pray for all these broken down people in this room. I pray for the people who don't yet know you, Jesus, who are under the curse of the fitness God or the success God or the perfect mom God, that they would run to Jesus and let the laws of all those other gods die. Die with them so they could live with you. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters, especially the ones who are grinding in their life, who just, they, they got to the point where I'm going to try to follow all the laws, and then they just realized they fell down. And then they got to the point where they were cynical and said, I'm not going to try to do anything, so I'll just live being forgiven. But if only, if all they have is being forgiven, which is utterly incredible, have they yet known to let the law die and let love flow in in the person the love that is alive, a living person, the Holy Spirit, poured out by Jesus, raining down us from the Father. So we go to your table now. I pray that, not because we can earn it, that there would be a faith that would believe this word. And one by one, the law would begin to die. The laws that crush us and slave us would die and your love would flow in. In Jesus' name.